Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Nick and Jake. Welcome back to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Swift 2.0 with Natasha the Robot Murishev from Capital One. But before we get into that, Jake, it's been a couple of weeks now since the keynote, and we've obviously had some time to digest everything and watch the session videos, etc. So I just wanted to go back to some of the things that we spoke about in the previous episode and sort of gauge how you're feeling about things now. Yeah, I, uh, I've i been watching the videos. I've been trying to get as many in as I can as quickly as I can. I watch them at like 1.5 speed in, in VLC so that I can tear through them. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff. I'm especially excited about some of the stuff that they didn't mention as much in the keynote. So like the, the re, um, replay kit and gameplay kit, some of the stuff for the gaming space, there's some really, really cool stuff in gameplay kit, pathfinding stuff and uh, like AI and component systems as opposed to um, inheritance architecture. A lot of stuff that's kind of common in, in gaming engines, but we haven't really been able to take advantage of, or if we, if we wanted it, we had to implement it ourselves in sprite kit. They're kind of bringing some of those tools to us. So that's, and some of the new sprite uh, scene kit stuff's cool too. So yeah, and I've been trying to learn about Swift. I'm generally I don't don't get as excited about just like basic language stuff, uh, which I find makes me a little strange compared to a lot of my programmer friends. But the new stuff in Swift, I'm super excited about, uh, which is uncharacteristic for me. So well, what about you, Mick? Yeah, well, I don't want to spend uh, too much time on the Swift in this section because obviously we've got Natasha joining us, and we're going to be talking all about Swift with Natasha. Um, but I, I'm not surprised. Uh, to hear that you're excited about all the the new game-related stuff. But to be fair as well, it pricked my ears up a bit, and I've mentioned this to Ray a couple of times this week. I'm one of those people that kind of is almost sat on the fence when it comes to game programming, because whenever I've tried it in the past, I do have an interest in it, but whenever I've tried it in the past, I'm able to get so far, and that's usually like taking sprites and putting sprites on screen and getting them to move around. But then I don't quite know how to take that next step, you know, like I know that I need some AI. I know that I need all this other kind of stuff to actually take, you know, what is a nice little graphical concept and turn it into a fully fledged game. And I think some of the stuff that's in gameplay kit would allow somebody like me now to be able to to take that next step and develop a, you know, a fully fledged game because Apple are actually providing all that environment that you need to do that in. So I think that's really cool. Uh, obviously, I'm really excited about watchOS 2 and that's pretty much been everything that I've been doing for the past couple of weeks so I binge watched all the WatchKit related sessions and all the, the new frameworks like watch connectivity and um, complications which I do want to pick up with you uh, but the other the other big thing that I'm really impressed about is UI stack view now I think this has been ported from OS 10 because there is an equivalent NS stack view on OS 10 that I think has been around prior to El Capitan um, and it is the kind of next natural step for auto layout on iOS I think and having worked with something very similar in WatchKit the last few months I'm really happy to, to see this on iOS and just see how actual powerful it is. So the stack view is a way to do layout similar to what the watch does, wherein you don't necessarily, it just you throw stuff into a container and it just kind of spaces them out equally, right? And then you can stack stack views inside of stack views. I haven't watched the session, so I'm, I'm just genuinely asking. 
Yeah, no, it, it, that's exactly what it is. Um, you can stack things horizontally or vertically, and there are four. I think there are four different ways that you can spread out the contents. So it's like leading, trailing, equally spaced or proportionally spaced, depending on on the subviews that are within that stack view. But the power does come obviously because you can nest them. So you can have horizontal within vertical, and it kind of gets you away from. You know, like if you've ever built a form or something like that and you end up having to utilize uh, UI table view and start having cells with text fields in them and, you know, worry about all that kind of stuff. And this just handles it all for you. But also, like the example they gave in the Mysteries of Auto Layout session one, which is where they really talk about it in depth, is they take a quite a complex layout that's built with uh, auto layout constraints and then sort of are given this design brief that they need to insert this new view and this new view has got to go right right in the middle of this existing view hierarchy, which basically everybody knows you're just going to break all these constraints and you're just going to have to say, roll right back with, you know, like just wh- whichever button it is in Interface Builder that just removes all constraints and start adding them again uh, from fresh. But then he basically rebuilds it using UI stack view and just takes a view and puts it in the right place and it just does the right thing. Um, so it is really impressive and it's one of the things as well that I've come across in iOS 9 the beta Xcode 7 that seems to be feature complete now I've no doubt there probably are bugs in it because obviously beta I've not come across them yet which is unusual for the first beta that you could just pick something up like that and it works and that's why I think it it might be not a direct port but at least have its roots in NS stack view on the, on the desktop because you know, they've got it right first time. Tell me a little bit more about the watch kit stuff, because I just got, I haven't watched those sessions yet either. That's on my list, but I haven't gotten to them yet. Is it, is it, is there stuff that we didn't hear about in the keynote that you're excited about or? Uh, I'm really excited about complications. I know we spoke about that in our WWDC build-up episode. So what we wanted to see, and we mentioned it again with Nate in the last episode, but having watched the sessions, it's just really well done it's one of those features and apis where you think you know if you were going to do it that's exactly the way you would have done it which is great and it again it just looks so i mean it's keeping in line with the rest of watch kit in that it's kind of its simplicity is its selling point there isn't really that much to it but i mean i'm I'm a really big fan of the the time travel feature in general yeah, that's. I'm excited about that. Have you, have, are you running the beta on your watch? I am. Yeah, that was the first okay. thing that I did on Tuesday okay. morning. <laughs> I've been too <laughs> afraid to do that. <laughs> well, I thought it's not the watch; it's the my phone. It's my primary phone. I don't want to upgrade yet because I'm worried it'll anyway that I won't be able to use it. So. Right. Well, I've already been scolded by a few people on the team because what I've done is I had a Motorola Moto G Android uh-huh. phone for some of the Android stuff we've been doing on the site. Needed a test device. So I took the decision to make that my primary device now so that I could put oh, iOS really? 9 on my... So you're kind of going over to the dark side. Uh, well, yeah, but only temporarily. Yeah, yeah. It's not, a, it's not a permanent move. It's a <laughs> short-term residency. I've been worried about you. I keep hearing these things <laughs> that you're going to be doing more and more Android, and I'm just like, we're going to lose him. But you know what? Like, having spent a lot of time with it, it is actually quite nice. And I don't know whether that's just because it's different. Oh, but there are some really nice touches in Lollipop. I've not really spent much time with it pre-Lollipop, and Lollipop's kind of the equivalent to 
iOS is iOS 7 in that it was this huge transition from, you know, pre-material design to post-material design, but it is really nice. Um, but what, obviously then what that allows me to do is put iOS 9 on my phone and watchOS 2 on my watch. And it is a requirement. You can't just install watchOS 2. It needs to go via iOS 9. But iOS 9 cannot be used, I think, as a primary device as it stands because the battery life is appalling. And I know it's a beta and I know they switch on lots of debugging and things, but out of the last few years, betas, I would say that iOS 9, for battery life specific, is the worst that I've had in the last few years. I can have 100% fully charged when I go to bed, put it on the the side stand for the alarm in the morning. So I'm obviously not touching the phone because I'm asleep and it'll be on like 20% when the alarm goes off, like eight hours later. Wow, that's yeah, that is bad. And then, and then, if you look at the, you know, you can go into settings and look through the uh, battery usage. It's like uh, Springboard sixty five percent. So I don't know <laughs> what's going on uh, with that. But obviously, what that also means as well is that I'm no longer wearing my Apple Watch full time, which I think was the only downside. But I think it's a nice trade off because I've been doing a lot of playing around with the new stuff. I'm, you know, I'm spending a lot of time at the desk and it's on the desk anyway, so it's not too bad. I was getting quite used to wearing it as a watch as well rather than just a test device. Um, so I think that's the only downside. But definitely been having a lot of fun. I did have one other question for you on the complications. Yeah. So there's obviously the the system complications, there's different sizes. So do you have to pick which size or do you, when you create a complication, does it scale or do you do you build it at different sizes and then just based on what you which slot the user how does that work okay so there's i think there's four or five families of complication and within each of those families apart from one there's two different sizes so i think there's nine in total and you you opt in so you can support them all or you can support one they were pushing you to support them all and it kind of does make sense and then does it just periodically like how does does the app run in the background no. And update it, or how does it get fresh data? This is the clever from... bit. So they actually ask you for a lot of data up front, both historical and future data. So they will ask you for a point in time that is the most recent point with regards to your data set. And then you'll get a, another call to a slightly different method saying, okay, so from that date you gave me, give me the next N number of, um, events that you want to use or you know groups of data that you want to use to drive your complication up to a maximum number and they provide that number and they do that both forward and backwards so that and they cache that data and then um, if you then get some new data at some point in the future that invalidates the data you've already handed off you can ask for for them to then bin what they've got cached and go through that process again And then the one time that you can actually launch the watch extension in the background, and this is the only time, is if you're using watch connectivity, if you get some data on your iPhone that would influence what's shown on the complication, you can use watch connectivity, just a single method to say, I need to provide some new data for the complication. It will wake up the extension in the background, run those methods, and then kill you again. Nice. That is pretty slick. It's, I mean, I really enjoy watching them sessions. All the WatchKit sessions are fantastic, and they've given us some really good ideas and a lot of inspiration for how we're going to take WatchKit by tutorials forward. So anybody that's bought the book, 
you know, we are working on that. We have been working on the last couple of weeks. <clears throat> so keep your eyes, uh, or ears, eyes peeled for that one. So I think that's uh, probably a really good point to bring Natasha into the conversation. Welcome, Natasha. Hi, welcome. Thanks for uh, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, before we get into Swift 2.0 and everything that was announced at WWDC, uh, can you tell us a bit about who you are and how you first got into iOS development? Sure. Um, so I like learning a lot. So um, in my last company, I was doing Ruby on Rails development at the time. And they had a really hard time finding iOS developers, but the company was very supportive um, with like learning environment and there was a lot of pair programming. Uh, so they were okay having someone from the Rails team join the iOS team. Uh, so I basically took that opportunity. I've always wanted to learn iOS, so I started learning it and joined that team and have been doing it ever since. Okay, so like everybody, you probably started off with Objective-C. Um, yes. But, I mean, I followed you for a while on Twitter and whatnot now, and you seem to jump on board with Swift sort of from day one. So what was it that first attracted you to Swift over sticking with Objective-C? Um, so as I mentioned, I like uh, learning new things and getting new challenges. So uh, when Swift came out, it was just an opportunity for me to get out of my comfort zone. You know, one note about Swift is that they did a really good job of making it look really simple. So when it came out, there was all these memes of, you know, like, I'm a JavaScript developer, now I can do iOS uh, because it looked that easy. But I think, like, in reality, there's just a lot of power and possibilities with Swift. So even a year later, you know, I've been doing Swift pretty much like on day one. I'm still learning, you know, something new, like, every day, and I can always improve my code and... Even at WWC, they had the protocol-oriented programming session, and you know that blew my mind. <laughs> you know, been, I was like, "Oh, I didn't think to do that." Um, I was getting stuck with value types because of that. So um, I just really loved the challenge, and even you know, even like functional stuff, learning that. So it, it's been really fun. So you actually run a newsletter? Is it weekly about Swift? Uh, yes. So. <laughs> Uh, usually I, I blog at natashadorova.com about whatever I'm learning. Uh, and then you, it's mostly for me to, I usually Google my own stuff. I'm like, I used to know this last week. <laughs> uh, but I think when Swift came out, there was all this other stuff coming out from, from the community that was super interesting. So it was more for me to keep track of all the new stuff, what's popular, and then trying to get my thoughts around it. Um, and that's been a really helpful tool for me to kind of go back to and, you know, kind of see what, how to do things that someone else wrote about from a different perspective. Okay, cool. Now, you mentioned it then, and it's the title of your blog, but I'm just wondering, before we, we move on to Swift, where the nickname The Robot comes from? Uh, sure. So um, I come from a non-traditional programming background. Um, I was actually a psychology major in college, which is actually a very useful major <laughs> for coding. But uh, when I was first learning to code, um, there were already a, you know, a lot of um, available online resources. Uh, but they were, I guess they all kind of le left me down. Or even uh, I went to this Ruby on Rails workshop for a weekend and I came back. And I was like, well, I'm not smart enough to code. Because, <laughs> and, you know, I've always done well in school. So then I ended up blaming myself and being like, I'm not smart enough. But 
um, you know, kind of three months after that, when I quit, um, there was a blog post about um, like Stanford's programming um, methodology course, and it's free online. So I was like, okay, I guess I can like tr look at it. Um, and the genius of that course is the way they teach it is instead of diving into you know strings and arrays, dictionaries, functions, which all sounds super easy to us as like programmers who've done this, but when you're coming from zero background, it's really confusing. Um, so instead of doing that, they actually had this um, really nice 2D world of Carol the Robot. <laughs> so hopefully you see where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, Carol the Robot basically can only do six things. It could you know, move up and down, turn, drop, up, drop and pick up little diamonds. And then you were learning more about the logic of programming by making you know, Carol the Robot kind of do all these things in this world versus focusing on the syntax. So that really resonated with me and made me understand, okay, it's not me, it's just the way I was being taught was wrong. Um, so the way uh, that class was taught really resonated with me. So uh, yeah, in fact, like I probably wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Carol the Robot. So <laughs> I wanted my own uh, Natasha the Robot. <laughs> no, that's great. Uh yeah, that's when I started my blog. <laughs> How long ago was that? How long have you been doing the blog? Um, I think it was 2011. So I guess let's move on and talk talk about Swift. So can you give us kind of a, a brief overview of some of the new features that were introduced for Swift 2.0? Uh, sure. So um, some of the cool ones are new error handling model, which is nice because there was no error handling model before. Uh, protocol extensions, really big deal. Um, early exits with using guards and defer statements. Um, it's easier to test, which I'm personally excited about because I'm a big testing uh, person. And obviously, I think maybe the biggest one is that it's going to be open source. <laughs> so uh, let's start with the first one, the, the error handling. What Can you explain the new error handling model and just kind of give us your perspective? I know there's been some division, like people that are, for me, for example, I started programming with Coco. And so I've never gotten used to the try catch stuff that a lot of other programmers from other languages are really familiar with. So I know there's been some debate whether or not they, they like it, this new model, but can you kind of explain mm -hmm. it and give us your point of view? Sure. So uh, when they first introduced me, I was uh, introduced it um, at WWC, you know, like when you go through the slides and I was there, uh, I was very confused. <laughs> it looked like very intense and Kind of a lot of syntax was around it with the do and catch and they there's like try and try explanation point um, so i think initially it looks very kind of scary especially if you're not used to it uh, but then even if you are from used to it from java um, it always has kind of a bad reputation of like uh, you know that was one of the good things about objective c it was like you don't have to do that um, so i think initially it was sort of confusing, but then afterwards um, I sat down and kind of just tried it out on my own. And I was actually pretty surprised because it was came really naturally after I looked in the slides, but like, you know, you kind of have to the first time. I followed along and did my own example and it came really naturally and it was really nice. Um, mostly because you didn't have to return an optional value. You can kind of just keep going in combination you have to combine it with guards maybe at the first statement and it's very elegant i think at the end but it is something that we'll have to get used to maybe if you've never seen it before i mean that seems to happen 
Oh, in my, it sort of the way that I look at it, it seems to happen quite often with Swift since it was introduced. <laughs> in, in that they'll release something and people go, "Oh, I can't believe they did it that way," or "What you know, what on earth they, mm-hmm. they're playing on?" And then actually, when you sit down and you spend a little bit of time, it's like the penny drops, and you and you kind of like, "Oh, yeah, I understand why they did it like That's that." Kind now. Of it's nice. Actually, yeah. quite elegant and. One of the things they mentioned, the reason they did it this way is because um, you have to, it forces you to do the air handling uh, <laughs> versus, you know, in Objective-C, you can kind of ignore the air case. And then that causes a lot of bugs, especially if you're a new developer. Um, you know, you might not even know that this could throw an error. Uh, so I think that's one of the big things that they think about with Swift is safety and like writing code. Um, and I think of it as like, um, bumpers on a bowling alley <laughs> where like you can't mess up right you can't fail um, so that really fits into their overall model of you know kind of safe safe code and making sure that you're handling um, everything so, so is this swift 2.0's swift 1.0's optional then because obviously in swift 1.0 it was all about getting rid of nil and not messaging yes. nil and not being yeah able to exactly about. exactly Okay, yeah, I say incremental, baby steps. Yes. So one of the other, or one of the most talked about sessions at WWDC, um, so popular that they actually, I don't know whether they chose or uh, caved under pressure to run it a second time on the Friday afternoon, was the protocol-orientated programming in Swift talk, which did um, discuss extensively the new protocol extensions in Swift 2.0. So can you give us an overview of what those are and sort of what problem it is that they solve? Sure. So um, over the last year, um, you know, as I mentioned, I've been reading a lot about, you know, how should I write script code and reading from especially a lot of people who did functional programming before. Um, and I've been going to talks. And one theme that keeps coming up over and over again from all this reading is that I should be using value types. <laughs> So um, so I went to my code and I'm like, okay, I want to use a value type. So by default, I started with a struct. Um, but then over some time, I'd end up having to subclass, you know, my, and but you can't, you can't uh, subclass a value type. Um, so then I would like be, okay, now it's going to be a class and I feel bad, but I didn't know how to solve that problem. Um, and I, you know, I've even like asked some, like one speaker and he was kind of like, oh, there's ways to do it. And he wasn't very specific. So that's been personally frustrating for me. Uh, but, uh, the protocol oriented or like the protocol extensions basically solved that problem, uh, because you no longer need to really subclass. So, uh, one of the issues with subclassing is single inheritance. You can only inherit from that one class. So then that class becomes bloated with kind of default functions or functions you need to implement. But instead, you can now have a default implementation of your protocol functions, uh, which means... So uh, one example of how this was used, and they gave this at WWDC, was the map function. Um, And, you know, before Swift 2.0, they had to make it a global function because they needed it to work on maybe arrays, like optionals had it, I think dictionaries had it. Um, but otherwise, they would have had to have each type uh, implement you know, its own version of map. So they decided to go with a global function. Uh, but using the protocol extensions, you can now extend the collection type protocol and 
you know, implement a default map representation and it'll apply to any, uh, anything that, you know, implements that protocol. So now value types can inherit from or can um, conform to multiple protocols and use functionality uh, in that really powerful way instead of having to like subclass some weird object uh, that kind of tries to fit everything into it. So if I want, if I was to implement something on like a, the array class, how do I, what if I put something, what if I have an array of types that that, that protocol didn't apply to? Is there a way to carve that out? Uh, yes. So there's, uh, I think you can use a where statement. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember the details, but there is a way that they showed in the video uh, where you can specify, you know, all collection types except ones that don't conform to equatable protocol or ones that do. So there is a way to do to be a little bit more specific um, to which, yeah, what it applies to. I think that was actually one of the specific examples that, that they gave, Jake. I don't, I don't, have you watched the session, Jake? Yeah, pieces pieces here and there, yeah. Because <laughs> I have to rewatch it a few times myself. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I've, I've been like taking them when I go work out. I'll listen to the audio. And so, you know what I mean? I'm in and out. Yeah. No, because that was one of the sessions that I really enjoyed. Just the whole um, crusty uh, character and the way that they portrayed him. Because obviously a lot of the sessions that we do with DC are... You know, it's one guy and we're just <laughs> instructing you. And, then there was this, and he was almost acting out this whole piece. It was entertainment. I was in the front row. I caught the Friday session because I missed the Wednesday one. And I was like, yes, I get to go see it. And it was really cool seeing it live because it was like basically like a skit. You're like seeing a yeah. live show. He had a whole personality and the whole story. So. <laughs> no, but I mean, it was good because it it was basically that crusty character every every step he throws him a new but what if but what if i need to do this and then he's like well you can just do that with protocols and uh, it, it was really good really enjoyed it so another thing that i've heard about that's new in swift is the guard statement from what i can tell it's just the opposite of an if statement like it just flips the so it executes the first block if the condition is false is it is it more than that like why why do we need it if it's just that uh yeah so it's sort of like that, but one of the things it helps with, but the main thing is it lets you do an early exit. So when you're using guard, uh, you're programming for the positive scenario. So it really lets you focus on that. So, you know, you unwrap the first optional and you're, if this, um, if there's, you know, maybe in your JSON payload, it's missing or something and your model depends on that optional being there, then you can get right away return from that function in one method um, and then if it is there you just continue in this positive flow and you can use the unwrapped um, value throughout your function so it's just a very nice way to get rid of like maybe multiple embedded if statements <laughs> and think about think positively um, about about like what you're building i was just going to say one other thing that they they introduced to get around sort of multiple if statements and the pyramid of doom in uh, inverted quotes, is um, you can do sort of, or there are some changes to optional binding, meaning you can do multiple bindings on a single line now, which is quite cool. Yeah, they allowed it. To, uh, this was in Swift 1.2 that it was introduced. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, <laughs> this works hand in hand with guard as well. So, yes, exactly. Guard works as long as all those um, yes. unwraps 
work. Yeah, and you can even use like where statements. So now you can even do, you can check against like enum, like different pattern matching. Um, so it got like very powerful and fancy in Swift 2.0. So the other thing I've heard about is uh, the defer statement. And what I understand that means is that it will wait until you exit the current scope and then, and then it executes the defer uh, command. Is that correct? Is that, am I describing that right? Uh, yes. So uh, as I mentioned, guard allows for early exits. So at any point you can exit your function if uh, a value is not there that should be there. Um, so defer is just a nice way to say once, no matter what happens, you know, execute this whenever it exits. Uh, so you don't have to kind of duplicate that code in every single maybe guard else statement or positive scenario. I guess I've in Objective C code a lot of times I'll see uh, like a go to bailout label. Is that is that essentially <laughs> what defer comes down to? I haven't seen that. But that sounds about okay. right. Yeah, yeah. Like when you're trying to, I don't know. A lot of times in like media uh, decoding stuff, that you're trying, you do two or three different things, and you're opening different files, and you're checking whether or not you can read them, and whether or not you can decode them, and then it's basically like what I've seen is that at the very end of the of that particular method, there'll be like a go to bailout, and it just goes through and cleans everything up and resets everything back to a default. Yeah, reset state. state yeah. I mean, one thing I think nice about defer is you're not restricted just a single defer block in a method you can have several which allows you then to tie your cleanup next to your assignment or your creation rather than shifting it all to the bottom of the the method so i think your code is a lot cleaner and more readable yeah you can basically just see okay this you know this but this keyword you know it's going to run at the end so it's just you know different even like the try statements and uh, the way it's set up, you can quickly read what it what is intended once you understand, obviously, the syntax. Now, we've talked about a few things that have been added to Swift 2.0, but on the flip side of that, some things have been removed as well. And one of those that came as quite a surprise was that print line has been deprecated, uh, which I'm sure we all use for debugging. Um, so I was quite surprised to see that, but they seem to have taken all the different print commands and just rolled it into a single one. Yeah, that seems uh, simpler, but then the new print kind of prints on the new line by default. So if you don't want that to happen, you have to, you know, pass in append new line false uh, <laughs> argument. So that's sort of annoying, but, you know, you can live with it. Now, one of the other things that they pushed on uh, when they were talking about Swift 2.0 was the new version of the migrator. So... I've never really had much luck with the migrator. I was wondering if you'd given the new one a shot and whether or not it works and works as well as they would have you believe it works. <laughs> uh, so I haven't tried it yet, uh, but you know the apps that I'm working on, they can't be upgraded to Swift 2 yet, uh, unfortunately. But um, I, did, I have heard good things and I have seen um, already libraries that were able to upgrade to Swift 2 like the next day after it was announced. So that gives me hope. It seems like, they, you know, they really work to make that a good experience. Um, and usually Xcode, when you go from one Swift, you know, to a new Swift uh, version, they're pretty good at least around telling you what the errors are and pointing those out. So you, even if there's a lot of them, you kind of get helpful feedback on how to f fix them. So um, I think it has potential to at least try out. 
Yeah, I mean, it's nice that they are putting... I mean, if it does work that well, that they're putting that effort into it because with something so new that's moving at such a fast pace, if they want widespread adoption, then I think they have to support it in that sense. I don't think they could make exactly. such <laughs> big changes so often and just be like, nah, you're on your own. Like, <laughs> So no, it's good yeah. that they're putting that effort in. One of the announcements that drew a big cheer, WWDC, was that Apple announced that they're going to be open sourcing Swift later this year. Um, is that something you're excited about? What do you anticipate that we'll see as a result of this? Sure. So um, I guess until now, I've only thought of Swift more in relation to iOS development because that's what I do. Uh, but I think they made it very clear that with open sourcing Swift and then especially that it'll be supported to run on Linux, um, that they kind of have this way bigger vision of writing Android apps in Swift, writing you know web backends in Swift and you know, Apple is not going to go ahead and do that work because <laughs> that's not, that's not um, really what they do. But, you know, by open sourcing it, they're opening up Swift to a much bigger potential of just like, you know, changing, creating a new programming language that like you can use across everywhere. And that's really powerful and exciting, right? Because we're, we're going to be able to use that. In some ways, I, I kind of, I'm guessing that it will be a test to see how good Swift is. Because if you're a, if you're an Apple Cocoa developer, you're already invested in Apple, and so you're going to jump on Swift and you're going to be excited about it. But somebody that's an Android developer is only going to use Swift if it's better, right? Or or has some real compelling value. So I'm I'm really eager to well, see. Well, you you won't happens. have to use Java. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I I was thinking about this. I obviously every other platform tries to entice iOS developers to develop their apps for their platform. I know uh, Microsoft were even paying developers at one point to port their apps to, well, I think it was Metro at the time, but it'd be Windows 10 now. But I was wondering, once this goes open source, if Google will at least have some interest in looking to see if they could adopt it for Android as an alternative, not to replace Java, but as another way into that platform to try and entice people to at least offer apps on both platforms if not trying to entice some developers to, to take the leap over so i think it will be interesting to see once this goes open source not so much what the community does with it but what other platform vendors do and also another thing to think about is um apple seems to be investing heavily in like education of swift um so i was actually like in line at, in the like women's restroom <laughs> at WBC and there was a teacher or professor and she said there was a event the day before where for teachers that, um, you know, some guy, some professor that they've partnered with has open sourced a whole curriculum on teaching Swift. And that in combination with like playgrounds, um, if they're able to get adoption within universities, uh, not just for iOS courses, but also maybe as a beginner course, because playgrounds are so powerful for visualizing everything you're doing. Um, they can also kind of get that younger generation of like in five years, maybe Swift is the first thing which you learned and you're comfortable with it. And now you can use it on Android and the web and iOS. So it's maybe the bigger, bigger approach and bigger vision. So Natasha, as a way to kind of wrap our discussion up today, what would you say your favorite Swift 2.0 feature is and, and why? What are, you, what are you really excited about? 
Um, so Mike Ash wrote a blog post this morning about where he explains um, all the new Swift 2.0 features, and he starts each feature with, uh, this is my favorite new Swift feature by far. <laughs> That's how I feel. <laughs> they're, so, they're very different, but all like very powerful. So, you know, like air handling, and I think of like air handling as like in combination with guard and defer, because they kind of come in a set. I think that's great because now you have uh, uniform error handling that you can put in your code and make it very readable um, across your project. Uh, but then like protocol extensions are really powerful too. Uh, so that's been ex exciting. But yeah, the whole announcement was kind of like Oprah show where you're just like, you get defer, you get guard, you get error handling. It was just all exciting. Um, <laughs> even just like debugging, I'm excited that I can see my enum. <laughs> Or like what it is. I was debugging this morning and it was like enum value. And uh, <laughs> so a lot of debugging things is also maybe not as front stage as new, but that's huge because it's been a pain. Um, and testing I'm excited about because I've even gotten into, I've been fixing tests this morning that like had to do with not being able to import the testing target in the, in the right way. So um yeah, I don't, I don't know if I can pick one. <laughs> I'll go with the everything is my new favorite Swift feature. <laughs> and a lot of it is also experimenting and like, you know, trying them out. How about I flip that around then and say, rather than looking at Swift 2.0, the release of Swift 2.0 means that you've had a year with Swift 1.0. So what's your favorite Swift 1.0 feature? Um, optionals. <laughs> <laughs> It's the big one, but I feel like that's made like my code very safe um, and it decreases a lot of you know just crashes that you would nor normally have. So I love the like code safety and that I don't really have to think about extra right or that anyone on a team can come in, they look at it, they know what it's saying. Um, so I love that. Okay, fantastic. Right, well, we'll wrap things up there. Thanks again for joining us, Natasha. It's been fantastic having Thanks you on. Thanks for having me. No, it's, it's been our pleasure. Um, as always, guys, uh, if you've got any feedback, then do get in touch. It's podcast at raywendelik.com. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you again next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the raywendelik.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.